I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are flipping through these books, reading every single sentence, whether it be a sentence or what should be not a sentence, and relaying to you only the sentences that are important. And if you say, hey, you skipped that whole sentence that wasn't important, then I'll tell you what, just go read the book yourself. And if I can't pronounce something, it's because I haven't heard it out loud. (laughs) I read it in a book. (laughs) Sorry, I'm literate. (laughs) Can I say something before we get into our lives? Before we get into the podcast? Yeah, sure. You could have an opportunity to speak, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll wait. I'll wait. Claire, (laughs) what are our announcements? Okay, first off... We are going to be coming to Vancouver in a couple of weeks, and I could not be more excited. You guys know that we have a special place in our hearts for Canada and might actually find ourselves crawling over the border, begging and pleading to move in. And then we're coming to Austin, Texas soon, and that'll be really fun. And I think my baby niece might come. So if you don't come to that, you might never get to see the most gorgeous baby around. And Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir about your life how would you describe last week's chapter effort Ooh, effort makes effort (laughs) (laughs) okay let's sit on it for a bit let's chew on that word what are we spelling it out i think you'd get it (laughs) i love that speaking it has been an effort (laughs) i couldn't think of anything clever (laughs) clever what is wrong with us a lot As you guys know, I am trying to expand my life, bring back more friendships. I have Ashley, and it's almost too much. (laughs) You ever know about King Midas? And he said, I wish I was gold, and that backfired. That's our friendship. It's so weighty and heavy and singular that it's almost an anchor. So I'm trying to expand and I have a lot of other friends and I'm trying to like tend to them and then make new different levels of friends. And I feel like this weekend, I actually just had the world's most social weekend. Dude, same. I threw a little B-Day party for my friend, which was so fun because I like all of her friends. And like, I love friends of friends. I love when my friends meet my other friends. Like I love joining friend groups. I'm very pro it as an adult. I think that's what you got to do. Tap into the friends of the friends. Yeah. And then the next morning I was cleaning up and my friend Sophia just bopped over and hung out for like 45 minutes an hour and then left while I was cleaning up and doing dishes. That is my love language. My love language is someone sitting in front of me and watching me fold laundry. It's my favorite thing in the world. And then later I had caught up with my friend Devin. We had a long ass lunch. And then the next day I saw a movie with my friend Josh. And then Devin has a girlfriend who lives near me. And like, I literally was like, can I have her number to go get coffee? Because I'm making friends in this area because Ashley does not live close to me anymore. And so now we're more just work friends. It's so hard because I feel like I can't go watch you do laundry because it's just a bit of a journey. It's a to-do. Yeah. And so I'm looking to replace you <laughs> with somebody local, no offense. <laughs> but I really feel, you know, I've been putting myself out there. I'm reaching out. I, I've just been like reaching out. I bought a ticket to something this weekend. I just reached out to this girl in LA. I was like, I already bought this ticket. Do you want to come? She couldn't, but it was only a $5 ticket and I'll find somebody else. Like, I'm just venting first, inviting later. We'll see you when we see you. I don't know. I'm really putting myself out there and I am exhausted but cup full. Beautiful. Thank you. I had a similar week and I would title my chapter Doing Things. Mm -hmm. I haven't been putting forth effort into like specific people in the same way, but I feel like I've just been saying yes to things and like trying new activities and I've been doing like activities like I went bird watching and then I went bouldering and then I went to a jazz festival and then I like went to a protest 
me and Joey Dardano have a comedy show on Wednesday. It'll be too late by the time you hear this. But I just like kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, I was like, just fucking make it work clear. And you know what? It turns out we're almost sold out. So wow, no problemo. It's like fun to do stuff. I'm a bad actress and I'm scared of acting. But I told this girl I'd be in her mini movie. So, like, I just feel like I'm saying we're saying yes. We're putting ourselves out there. I'm going to the birthday party. I'm hanging out at the hang. Yes, it's fun to do things. I feel like it's been really nice because, you know, I'm like addicted to my phone in a way that is like no good for you. You know, I, I won't say looking at your phone is bad. like I like social media. I like taking a gander at what's happening in the world. I like pretty pictures of stuff. But like I need to exist in the world harder. Like I feel like honestly, it goes back to the pandemic where I feel like suddenly there was just like hours of uninterrupted phone time. And so that became like most of my day, <laughs> whereas it used to be like go to work and then check your phone and then do this and then check your phone really quick. Instead, it became like once all of these things get out of the way, then I can just sit on my phone for hours. And I was like, well, this is actually a really bad way that I've rewired my noggin. So I've been doing all these activities where you like don't even really have your phone at all. Like for bouldering, I don't take my phone out of my little cubby. Are you about to say birding? Because I've seen 100 photos of you birding. But I didn't take them. <laughs> okay. And I took one photo birding and it was of the red-bellied woodpecker that was absolutely just a marvel, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but like I didn't take my phone out the whole time because one time I saw the birdwatching captain. He wouldn't want to be called captain. He says it's a collective. But one time I saw the birdwatching captain when I was walking bug and I was looking at my phone and he said the first rule of birdwatching is that you have to put your phone away. And, and now I like put my phone away for fear of like getting in trouble from birdwatching. Sometimes a little authoritarianism is good. I know. I love it. I love it. I love being like once you leave your house, you like don't look at your phone until you're back in your house. It's actually so nice. And like sometimes I'll take a quick glance when I feel it vibrate to see like who's messaging me to see if it's like important. But like I'm not stopping to browse. As Julia Fox says, I determine when I look at my phone, not the other way around. I love that. A poem. <laughs> But if I got really into poetry, we can't just keep going. I know, but I don't want to talk about Jelly Houston. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. It's that this <laughs> book is crazy. <laughs> I will say I really wanted to do like a proper celebrity who's lived through stuff memoir with like me. The problem is I introspection is the relatively new. So I know. They don't know about like this book was invented before people thought about a narrative arc or sense of self. It's so wild that like the quotes on the front of this book, elegant and entertaining. Houston writes a memoir with a conversational intimacy inhabiting the role of the new best friend. I mean, San Francisco Chronicle, are you on drugs? Maybe. In what way <laughs> did you meet her? And like, who is your best friend, Carrie Ricky? Can I say something? <laughs> if I went to a dinner and had somebody talk to me the way this book talked to me, I would FaceTime you. <laughs> From the sidewalk and go, Ashley, I just had the most unhinged, name-droppy, braggadocious dinner. We will meet her one more time just because you need to see how insane she is. First of all, I want to say to the people who worship her as a lord and savior of the arts, I do want to say you need to stuff your Nepo baby bullshit in a sack, okay? You cannot speak out against Nepo babies and then say that Angelica Houston is God. It's just not fair. I'm not saying you can't worship her. I'm not saying you can't respect her. You can't love her. But I'm saying that you must leave Kaya Gerber alone. Go out and buy some fucking road skincare lip gloss and smack your lips to the tune of Angelica Houston. <laughs> Olivia Jade should be free. <laughs> okay, I also want to say I didn't think she seemed crazy. Just the experiencing of reading this book makes you crazy. Was similar to, oh my God, you know what it was like? 
What? It was like if some restaurant influencer on TikTok sent you the Excel spreadsheet that they use to say where the best pasta in West Village goes to. Like this was nothing but a data set of all of the most famous names in Hollywood in 70s and 80s and all of the incredibly expensive places they went and all of the expensive furniture and where the furniture. It was just list after list after list of names that I know mean something. But to me, your most interesting parts can't be on the outside. The most interesting thing about you can't be the circumstance of your experiences. I guess the problem is I don't think she was even trying to seem interesting. I don't think she was trying to do anything. I think someone said, you've lived quite a life. You should write a memoir. And she sat down. And this is actually her second memoir. So this starts when she's 21. Her first book is called A Story Lately Told. But this one, Watch Me, is the one with all of the like Hollywood in it. I mean, I guess the other one had Hollywood in it, too, because she's raised that way. Born of Hall. <laughs> and so then this book feels like she went through her life year by year and was like, OK, this is the year that. And then she just listed all of the thoughts that she has had that can be associated in order. And sometimes she'll just have these one off thoughts where I'm like, you don't want to go back and reflect on that line for not one second. OK, she'll be like, my best friend had a heart attack and died. Tuesday, I went to get my hair done by my hairstylist who was known for doing Marilyn Monroe's hair. You know who else was there? David Hockney. He was painting this painting. And then later he sold it to this person who we later met in Aspen. You know who else was in Aspen? Hunter S. Thompson. He shot himself when I was wearing his necklace. And then later we had antiques from France when we were on our way to meet Daphne Guinness on the house that I actually grew up next door to because this rich person lived there. The experience of this book is like when you're on old Hollywood Wikipedia and you're just like clicking through and you're like, ah, this person married this person who was daughter of this person who was the uncle of this kid. Fascinating. It's just the hubris to write a book where the interest is how famous these people are, assuming that these people will be famous forever. Only your interiority, only humanity is always true. You know what I mean? Yes. I do think the things that make a great celebrity memoir, we always say this, the things that make any memoir a good memoir are just you have to have a personal story. And so when it's just lists of things, it's so uninteresting. Like, there's no reason that Minka Kelly's book was 100 times better than Angelica Houston's book, except for that Minka Kelly like knows she's a person. And I don't want to blame Angelica Houston because one thing we'll get into in this book is I don't know if anyone ever told her she was a person. Also, I like nobody made me read this book. And that's what I want to give her. I think if you are somebody who knew about every name in this book, the idea that a bunch of celebrities were in a room together once isn't exciting to me. But I think it is exciting to some people. I guess I will say still, she doesn't give you, I think, the story you want from all of these celebrities being in a room together. Like she just, it, they just were. Yeah. <laughs> Section one, she calls love. So this book is divided into three sections, love, fame, and fortune. Even though there is like love, fame, and fortune in all three sections, but it's an it's a distinction. But something she loved was having Jack Nicholson cheat on her for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the story of Jack Nicholson's cheating and how great he was and how much she cheated. It was not about how great he was. It was about how she just like was around him, even though... No, but it's more about his career than hers. Yeah. It's a lot about... And then he was in Chinatown and then he was in The Shining. This book opens up. She's 21 years old. She's just moved to Los Angeles. She's broken up with her old ass boyfriend, Bob Richardson who, if you go Richardson, a photographer, I know that guy. He's the father of Terry Richardson, famous rapist, famous <laughs> overflashed rapist. Have you ever thought about putting someone against a blank wall and just like shining lights at them and then do assaulting them? Well, it's been done. <laughs> and been done well. <laughs> well, it's been done by a Nepo baby. 
Bob Richardson, the man that I'd lived with for the last four years, a bold and provocative fashion photographer, 24 years older than I, with whom I'd been involved in a temptuous affair. So again, the last four years, she is 21 years old, standing at baggage claim at LAX in March 1973. That means that since age 16 or 17, probably 16, honestly, she was involved with a man 24 years older than her, living with him in New York City. So that paints a picture of where she comes from. And I do want to say, when I started this book, I was like very shocked and freaked out by the fact that her life began at the end of one relationship in the beginning of meeting Jack Nicholson, because on the very next page, she meets and basically moves in with Jack Nicholson. But now that I understand that this is a sequel, I get that she got through the first 20 years. But still, I wonder what she even said there. Yeah. So she gives a quick rundown of what was in the first book. So her dad is a very famous director named John Houston. Her mother was a famous ballerina named Enrica. After she gets off the plane at LAX with a dream and a cardigan, I will be staying temporarily at the ranch house in the Pacific Palisades that Cece had owned prior to her marriage to dad. So Cece is her dad's new wife that she was redecorating to accommodate some treasures from our old life in St. Clarence, a pastoral estate in the west of Ireland where I grew up with my brother, Tony before we moved in with our mother in London, before the birth of my half-siblings, Danny and Allegra, before I acted in a movie at the age of 16 with my father directing, before my mother's death by a car crash in 1969. She had like dabbled in acting in the entertainment industry and then became a model. So that's why she was in New York. She was in a movie with her father that he had directed. The movie was called A Walk with Love and Death, and I think it was pretty panned, specifically her. So she just moved in with her boyfriend and became a model. Then she moves to L.A. and right at the gate, she's invited to a party. Where's the party? Jack Nicholson's house. Jack loves pretty girls. So Cece brings her. Jack is like, oh, she's hot. I want her to stay the night. Cece's like, oh, hell yeah, stay the night. And it's like, this is your 21-year-old stepdaughter, Jack Nicholson. This was his 36th birthday. So that's cool. I mean, every paragraph in here is written like this. I was trying to find like a perfect one that exemplified it. But I'll just read this. I looked up Jeremy Relton, a handsome Rhodesian friend in my former life, when I was going to school in London. He had been designing sets for a play and was living in an apartment on Fountain Avenue. We had picked up our friendship where we left off five years before. He introduced me to his social circle, which included comedy writer Kenny Solms and his collaborator Gail Parent, the talent agent Sandy Gallen, Michael Douglas and Brenda Vaccaro, Paula and Lisa Weinstein, and Neil Diamond. Kenny and Gail wrote for The Carol Burnett Show and numerous television specials for Marilee Tyler Moore, Dick Van Dyke, and Julie Andrews. And then she's like, a Swedish friend of hers, Brigida, who owned Strip Thrills, a dress shop on Sunset, told Cece that she was going to a party at Jack Nicholson's house. Jack Nicholson lived up on the hills that separated San Fernando Valley. But everything is like this. Like, and this famous person knew these 10 famous people. And then one time I went to this dinner and his hairdresser actually later moved into this giant estate that I lived in in Ireland. We get it. Everybody's the richest person. And she's like, and in an Aspen back then, nobody wore makeup. Cool. And then the problem is that there is no introspective. I think the reason that this book is only 384 pages and Jane Fonda's book, which I think 700 pages, is because that one at least had the, the through lines of thoughts. At the end of this book, she starts listing off all the people who have died in her life. And I didn't remember what any of them meant to her because she had named everybody. Yeah. So the interesting thing about this book is that because there are no lists of thoughts, actions just keep happening. And you're like, wait a second. Why did you do that? And I wonder if she's ever thought about why she did that. Exactly. I don't think anyone told her that she could look within, even though she does talk about being in therapy several times in this book. It doesn't come up here. So she meets Jack Nicholson at this party. He asks her to spend the night. She spends the night. 
Then he asked her on a date, but then he cancels her date last minute and says that he had a prior obligation. And her friend calls her from a bar and is like, uh, your date is here with his prior obligation. It turns out he is on a different date with his ex-girlfriend. Michelle Phillips. Michelle Phillips. She shows up to the restaurant and goes up there and asks Jack how he's doing. And then you're like, oh, fuck Jack Nicholson. Because I didn't realize they dated for 17 years. So I was like, wow, a romance that grew and flamed out in just minutes. And then she's like, anyway, on one of my first dates with Jack, he took me to the races at Hollywood Park. And I was like, when did you decide that him dating Michelle Phillips was chill? And then Michelle Phillips catches them in bed and then they become friends. And then she's like, I was still wrapped up in my thoughts of Bob Richardson the photographer that she had just left in New York. Everyone I met at the time seemed touched by a peculiar madness. Then she goes on and for like the next 100 pages describes Jack Nicholson's life, Jack Nicholson's work, what he likes, what his friends were. This next page is literally a list of all of Jack's nicknames for his other friends. And I think that there is no more bizarre thing that you could put in your own memoir than somebody else's sign of closeness. Yeah. Like, what if in my book, I had a page dedicated to all the people you grew up with? Like, what does it have to do with me? It's like very bizarre what is important in this book. That's why it's just every thought she has linked to any period in time. But it's like driven by the men. Driven by the men, for sure. You very much get the sense in this book about that period, about how there were a lot of successful women, but they were all like assigned to a more successful man. Like there was this table of incredibly important Hollywood men and then their wives and some of their wives had done stuff too. But it was like you had to be part of this power couple to have a seat at the table that it was like the man first. Which I think is a really interesting thing to dive into. And I wish that someone who was there would. It kind of just confirms everything you've ever thought about what it's like to be a famous man. I thought a lot about Leonardo DiCaprio. Also, do you know what? He calls Angelica Houston toots and tootie most of the time. And that's what you call bug? Which is what I call bug, but only because she is always ripping toots. <laughs> she is tootie. <laughs> it's sickening. But it really made me wonder about like the wafting smell from Angelica Houston. I think bug and Angelica Houston are like beautiful in the same way. <laughs> I don't think that you think bug is beautiful, so that's not nice. <laughs> One of the first things I noticed about Jack was that he had a great many people around who performed all sorts of functions for him. On Saturdays, the guys would all sit on the TV. A receptive and appreciative audience always charmed him. He reminded me so much of Elvis. I got a lot of Elvis Priscilla vibes from this relationship where he always just had this crew of men around him that like laughed at his jokes and he had these people that worked for him his whole life. And it was very much like, if you pledge your entire life to me, I'll always take care of you. All it'll cost is the rest of your fucking life. And I'll make sure you have a new car and your kid has a watch at graduation. Yeah. The number one quality in being my girlfriend is sticking around and putting up with whatever. With whatever. So Annie Marshall is his assistant. And then she becomes Angelica Houston's one of her best friends. And that that just comes up a lot. So keep that name in mind, I guess. During the four years I spent in New York, I had achieved top status as a model and worked for the best photographers and designers in the world. But I believed at some point that I would take up the reins and become the actress I'd always wanted to be. So she's staying with her dad for the most part, but mostly living with Jack. There was a nascent Western branch of the New York clan in Los Angeles. A lot of people were making the shift. Barry Berenson, Pat Ast, Peter Lester, Juan Fernandez, Dennis Christopher, European friends too were making the journey west. There were about 10 places to eat in town. The Bistro, Trader Vic's, Perino's, Chasen's, The Cock and Bull, La Scala, Scandia, The Old World, The Source, The Brown, Derby. And it just like goes on like that, just listing all these beautiful people upon the strip, the hot clubs of the moment, the risky, the whiskey, the rainbow room. The all Roxy. On- what did I say? The risky. Well, 
it's funnier if it was risky whiskey and rainbow room. That's true. Um, the Roxy, the whiskey, the rainbow room were all owned by Jack's best friend, Lou Adler, who was the president of AM records and his partner, Elmer Valentine. They cater to a hip young crowd. They also celebrated Groucho Marx's 82nd birthday at the Hillcrest country club. Groucho had a companion and a secretary called Aaron Fleming, who along with the actors, Ed Bedgley Jr. And Bud Court was helping to come out of retirement. As I call, he sang animal crackers and made a pass at me before he temporarily lost consciousness. Do you see what I mean? It's just lists of things. And then that is where the chapter ends. There's no start and conclusion to anything that happens. The chapters just start and end, which is so odd because where do you decide where to put the chapter breaks? I mean, so in that first chapter, you learn she moved out west, met Jack Nicholson. She learned what all of Jack Nicholson's nicknames were for his friends. Here's a list of all the other people who were also moving out. And here's a list of everywhere where anybody could have ever been eating. (laughs) Interesting. During the years that I'd spent in New York, I had achieved top status as a model and worked for the best photographers and designers in the world. I had grown used to hearing that I was exotic and high fashion. So then she moves out to California. She had been in A Walk with Love and Death with her dad. I'd believed that at some point I would take up the reins and become the actress I'd always wanted to be. So she's staying with her dad and Cece in LA and kind of just assuming she would become an actress, but she is putting no effort into it. And she basically just decides to follow Jack around for most of the time. So then the next. 100 pages kind of are a day-by-day list of every vacation she took took with Jack, which were a lot because she didn't have a job for all of her 20s, I'd say. Here and there, she would model. So she goes to New York. She'd model for Halston and then party with Apollonia, who I really only know from that Kanye song, to be honest. Shoot me, whatever. Someone (laughs) named Ara, who was a hairstylist turned photographer. I mean, it was just like, here's who was at the party. This is what we were eating. This is who the cook was. This is where else we lived. I was terrified of running into Bob Richardson, worried that he might learn I was in town and show up at Aras to claim me. But this is the thing is she'll say lines like this and then never revisit that conversation. Like he does not ever show up to claim her. I don't think she ever sees him again. So it's just such a weird thought to throw in there with no explanation. Aras was a refuge for many of us. He was a fantastic host. He introduced Jack to beautiful models and in turn, Jack would go to Aras parties. Of course, after I met Jack, this posed a not inconsiderable problem for me. But those evenings could be extraordinary. So again, from the beginning, the first date they go on, he cancels to go on a date with someone else. And their whole relationship, he's cheating. And like 10 years in, she goes, I think he cheated on me a lot. He canceled the first date. I mean, literally. So this is a few weeks later. They're in New York at this party at Ara's house. This model Apollonia is acting crazy. She's putting a lampshade on her head. Jack is calling her apples only. Very clever Jack. She can't understand why Apollonia can't stop laughing and crying. And then later, she finds out when she meets back up with Jack at the Cannes Film Festival that they had previously been dating and they had sex that night after Angelica left the party. But now it really is over. But like, it's not said with any emotion. She was just like, I was angry, but I moved on. He says, oh, toots, it was just a mercy fuck. This was the first time I'd heard copulation described as an act of compassion Not that he ever vowed to be faithful to me, but somehow he thought it was an acceptable answer. I guess it was an acceptable answer because you accepted it as the answer. Again, it's not presented with any emotion. And so it leaves you, the reader, to just decide how anyone feels about anything. Or I guess you don't have to. You could say no one feels anything about anything. These are just things. It's so odd. She spends all of her 20s following Jack around the world, occasionally modeling and constantly getting cheated on. And that's kind of the story. And the thing is, the stories of her modeling and the stories in the fashion world do seem so interesting. She met up with Grace Coddington, which let me know if you guys think we should do her memoir, because I do think she's interesting, but I also don't know if that's like niche. 
And they just like do this photo shoot randomly with Halston, I think. I don't know. Here we are reading about it. It still wasn't interesting. Like she did not make it interesting to me. Well, because I wonder like did a story happen anywhere ever? I mean, when you think about some of the actresses who put like where the inspiration came from, the work they did to prepare for the role. There's no feeling of craft here. There's only feeling of like listless party girl, Nepo baby being part of the crowd. And I don't know. And I guess I wonder if it has to do with the Nepo babyism of it all, because I don't think that there was any real striving and achievement. I think it was mostly just deciding she wanted to do something and doing it. So there's no feeling or thought or art behind it because she's just doing stuff because she can and gets the opportunity to. Yeah. I mean, she talks about these things happening, these like great photo shoots, the way I would talk about painting my room when I was a little kid with my friends. Yeah. I don't know. We were bored, so it was something to do. She kind of puts her heart on the table for Jack and Jack is like, "Mm, weird. They're just traveling the world, going to hotels. There's no larger point. I wanted after every story that she told to be like, well, why did you tell me that? Jack was less than enchanted when, upon arriving at the hotel, I began to serenade him in our room. He was not feeling particularly well, having received that day in the mail a gift from Lou Adler of eight-day-old green corn tamales covered in mold from his favorite Mexican restaurant, El Cholo, in L.A. And having devoured them, green mold notwithstanding, and he had an early call. Why did he eat mold-covered, weak-old tamales? That's disgusting. So at one point, she and Jack are traveling, and then he makes plans with his friends and just doesn't invite her and leaves her in the hotel. So then she makes plans with her friends and just leaves and goes, if I couldn't get a commitment from Jack, at least I was going to have fun on my own terms. This is not a fuck you to Jack. He was already just doing something else. You can do something else, too. There was evidence after Spain that Jack had slept with a script supervisor when I was suspicious and I'd start looking around for evidence in his wallet, his bureau, his bedside drawer. There was never a time when I did not find some telltale item, some scrap of inflammatory confirmation. So at a certain point, I stopped snooping and I also stopped trusting him. When did you trust him? When did you trust? Why did you trust him? When I talked to Jack on the phone, I asked if I'd ever see him again. Jack was defensive. He asked me what I was talking about. He had followed me all over the place already. I asked if I should follow him and he said no, which hurt. Unrequited love is painful. If you give less, they give more, I thought. So I should try to cool it. She at this point is like 22 years old still. And he's, I guess, at that point, 37-ish. But she doesn't cool it. Like she says these things, but then they just keep seeing each other for another like 15 years. She never really explains what they liked about each other outside of, I mean, obviously he's an incredibly charismatic, attractive man who was at the height of fame in Hollywood. But I don't know what beyond that she liked about him. It doesn't even seem like they ever had a conversation. Mostly the only time explained about him is like the thing she was in awe of, which was his other friends and his work. I think he would also talk at her. I don't know that they were ever alone having a conversation. I feel like she mostly accompanied him to think. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I have no sense of what their relationship was like when it was good and they were alone. I don't know what their relationship was like when it was good and they were alone, but I don't know what she's like at all. I don't know if she's funny. I don't know if she's serious. I don't know if she's quiet. Like, I don't know a thing about her personality. I can't imagine what it would be like to meet her. One evening, there was a party for Barbara Streisand given by Ryan O'Neill. Ryan stared at me from across the room. Jack was a little in his cups and refused to eat. I don't, that really tickled me. I like the idea of being in your cups. Then Ryan comes and whispers something in her ear and kind of behind Jack's back, she just starts dating Ryan O'Neill. Like Jack would be out of town and she would use his season, man, before social media, you could do anything. She was using his season tickets to Lakers games to go on dates. But like going with his business manager. Yeah. Like the business manager and a date. Yeah. (laughs) So she starts seeing Ryan O'Neal and then she goes, I'm leaving you for Ryan O'Neal. 
which we know because he dated Farrah Fawcett at one point. And Ryan O'Neill is the father of Tatum O'Neill, who was married to our favorite tennis player, John McEnroe. Jack also would just like fuck shit up and leave other people to handle it. And she goes, if Jack could be inconsiderate, he could also be wildly generous. He might buy you a Rolls Royce off the cuff. Like this is some real Elvis-y behavior. It's just... Right? Isn't he so much like Elvis? This is not generous. He just has a lot of money. Like it's not generous to give people elaborate gifts with no thought. Later, she's like, he was so good about Valentine's Day. His assistants always made sure he had sent me something on time. And I'm like, thoughtful. But it also made me think about all those elaborate celebrity gifts that men give their wives for like Mother's Day and all those flower walls and the way that, I don't know, they're not planning those things. Someone else was given a budget. Yeah. So it actually makes it worse if you don't get anything. Jack's big white, happy smile. He was comfortable in the public eye and seemed to have forgotten I was there. She has some line about him dropping her hand as soon as he sees the praise. And I was like, ah, Taylor Swift. (laughs) She's in the room right now. Sorry, I think this is before she leaves him for Ryan O'Neal. At this point, she and Jack are a couple. Like, I just don't really understand what that means to her. As far as I guessed, no one cared about me. And I had my way of coping. It was to retreat to my bed. Jack would trot in from the crossette between screenings and the attentions of beautiful forthright French women and toss onto the duvet the odd little oil painting or trinket he'd bought for me, hoping I'd lighten up. And I would sulk. I think this is like one of the first times we're on page 41 that she ever gives a glimmer of interiority and there's no real elaboration. There's a lot of talk of Aspen. Jack was introduced to Aspen by the 14-year-old daughter of his acquaintance, Art Fister. First of all, what? What do you mean a 14-year-old taught you about Aspen? Who owned buttermilk in Ajax Mountains. Her name was Nancy and she was a wild child, a free spirit, and an amazing skier. A few years later, Nancy found a perfect house for Jack above the beautiful beaver pond in Maroon Bells. In those days, there was at least eight pubs on Main Street. She loves to keep count of eateries. Hunter Thompson was running for sheriff. It was just, I don't know, a crazy time. July 8th was her 23rd birthday. Oh, we forgot to say her birthday. So her birthday is July 8th, 1951. So she was 63. So she tells Jack that she wants to be in the movies. And he was like, no, I don't think that you should be an actress but then he later is like oh there's this movie called the fortune and it might be good for us to do together but she doesn't want to do it because she feels like it's a little bit nepotism-y to get her boyfriend to just like get her a role in the movies which what did she think was going to happen she's really against having a role because of her boyfriend she does later like mostly take roles from her dad yeah and also she's not doing roles at all so instead of working for her boyfriend she doesn't work Oh, my God. And then Jack gets a call being like, guess what? It turns out the person that you thought was your sister is actually your mom. Anyway. She said it didn't really bother him that much. She actually doesn't get bothered by things much, except for that he's also the most sensitive man in the world. And he takes things so much harder than you'd ever imagine. But also, he's so stoic. My father and Jack were a lot alike. Yeesha. (laughs) There was a profound and devoted sense of loyalty with Jack. If he invested in you or if he placed his heart with you, it meant something for life. Which, what does that mean to you? Because he cheats on you constantly and always ignores you. There was very much a sense with Jack that one was on his team and it was a good team to be on, a strong team, the winning team. When I was with Jack, there were very few women I trusted. Awesome. (laughs) Okay, not to like always be talking about bell hooks, but in her book, she does talk about the way women betray themselves because they're addicted to fame and glamour. It's interesting because I feel like it borders on like victim blaming, but there is this sense of being like women need to take accountability when they're very clearly not in a relationship where they're being loved. They're oftentimes staying because they like the approximation to status and money and they like have to take accountability for that 
So at one point, she is thinking about marriage, and then she tells Jack, if you had any balls, you'd marry me. And he says, marry you? Are you kidding? And so she just goes and cries and cries and cries. I was spending my days at Jack's house very much in love with him and feeling thwarted professionally. I mean, how did we get from point A to point B on that one page? At one point, she gets a call from Michael Douglas asking if she would give Jack a script. Again, so she's feeling thwarted professionally, and like her only Hollywood calls are coming from other people being like, can you get me to the top of Jack's list? But I don't know why she would be getting Hollywood calls. Right. She hasn't done a goddamn thing. Since she was 16. Except for model. It turns out the script is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, so she does get it to Jack, and it, you know, obviously is huge for him. And then he does Chinatown. I don't know. It's just a big couple of years. I think the next 40 years for Jack Nicholson. (laughs) I think he has a really good run of a few decades. (laughs) Her dad calls her weeping because Cece, her stepmom, is accusing him of having an affair. And then she goes, well, are you? And he goes, no, of course not. He says, absolutely not. Dad, a legendary ladies man looked at me as if by asking the question, I had openly betrayed him. So Cece thinks he's having an affair with Marcella, who works for them. 21-year-old babysitter of the youngest daughter. And then Cece leaves him because she thinks he's having an affair. And like within the year, he's married to Marcella. And then it turned out the reason Cece thought they were having an affair is because her brother had walked in on them having sex. (laughs) Which I feel like is pretty good evidence. Eyeballs. (laughs) Everyone has affairs all the time. She says, I was tragically gullible. Maybe that's why acting has always appealed to me. If I want to, I can be almost anything. And this, I actually think, speaks a lot to who she is because there is just the vibe of a shell of a person here. And so I do think that the best actors, this is a thing that we talked about with Matthew McConaughey's book. I think it is something that genuinely makes great work on screen is not having any interiority. I think that if there is no sense of self, you don't have to break up. It's like learning a language, right? You know how you're not supposed to constantly be translating. You're supposed to think in that language. So if you're not having to let go of yourself and then adopt a new self, you just have to fill your empty self with a new self. I think that it is a lot more convincing on screen. Whether you are afraid to deal with the cold and the rain and the sleet, or you are just not in the mood to grocery shop this time of year with the crowds all handling their New Year's resolutions at once, stay home and let Hungry Root handle it. With Hungry Root, you can kickstart a week of healthy eating and get groceries delivered right to your door. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered right to your door. They have healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. All you have to do is take a fun, short quiz, and then Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, how you like to eat, and they'll ask the flavors you like, the kitchen appliances you use, and so much more. And then they'll ask your like needs and preferences, They'll keep everything top of mind to build the perfect grocery cart for the most delicious recipes, all of your grocery needs for an entire week. Hungry Root recommends recipes based on your tastes. You can take their suggestions or you can choose from anything you want. They have fresh produce, high quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks, sweets, and so much more. It's such a good way to have them help you hone your recipes and select your grocery cart before you check out, before you have the delivery sent right to your door. Because there are so many times when I am walking around the grocery store, I see something, I think, oh, I can definitely make something delicious out of that. But I don't buy any of the other ingredients to go with said delicious thing. You will not believe how many times I have purchased bok choy and not another single thing to cook with it. And then it just goes bad. I cannot be wasting food anymore. That is not good for you. It is not aligned with my New Year's goals. The best part is that Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, it's got to be quick to make, and it has to contain whole trusted ingredients. Spend less time meal planning, shopping and cooking, and more time enjoying healthy food that you will actually love with Hungry Root. 
Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash worm to get 40% off your first delivery and your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent ya. Okay, so this is when she meets Ryan O'Neill for a real time. They're at a dinner together and he kind of whispers by from across the table. And she likes the attention because Jack gives her no. I don't know that Jack knows that they're together. So then she thinks it's sexy that Ryan O'Neill is like hitting on her. And so then they make out that night and then they have some dates where they're just like out in the open using Jack Nicholson's season tickets for the Lakers. Can I say the reason she hooked up with him is she was mad at Jack that night for going to some New York City event without her. And he was like, none of the wives are coming. And I'm like, oh, this is so Elvis. It's so Elvis. So then she starts talking about it. Ryan O'Neill, and then she tells Jack, I'm in love with Ryan O'Neill and I'm leaving you. And then she's like, Jack is probably going to come drag me back soon anyway. She says this about Bob Richardson too. Like, no one ever drags, it seems. She found Ryan a little bit embarrassing, which I think is pretty interesting. She also just doesn't leave him. There were two Ryans. He could be fun and gregarious, including Allegra on weekends. Allegra is her little sister, including Allegra on weekends and taking us shopping and for haircuts. What? But then there was a dark side. He could be critical, pugnacious, jealous, demanding, and deceptive. I'm sorry, but a pugnacious, jealous, deceptive person like cannot win me over just because they got me a haircut. What about three years ago? Like if I hadn't learned what I know now? Yeah. I still think a haircut wouldn't do it for me. Okay, but what about shopping and including your family? Maybe. (laughs) I don't believe Ryan had much of a conscious, guilty or otherwise. He could go from Jekyll to Hyde in a heartbeat. Okay, so he overall has no redeeming qualities. (laughs) I found out Ryan was sleeping with another girl. I didn't think Ryan was capable of love without some kind of downside. She was a playmate of Tatum's and another kind of playmate to Ryan. Excuse? I think Ryan and Tatum O'Neill. I think, I wonder if there was a memoir there, but I think they had a really gross relationship. There is a memoir. Tatum has one for sure. In the year and a half I was with Ryan, I'd never had my picture taken with him in public. So at this point, she's about 25 years old. She's been with Ryan for about a year and a half. I can't believe it was a year and a half that he just kind of wooed her one night and then she left Jack to go be with him. So then she just had to be with him because she doesn't know what to do when she's not with someone. I do think they had a lifestyle like in Jane Austen novels. You know, when somebody visits someone at their manor or estate and you go for like six weeks and then while you're with that family, some other family comes over and they're like, well, come visit us at our estate. So then on your six week vacation to visit cousins, you take a two week vacation to visit their neighbors or something. Yeah, I feel like that's her lifestyle because she doesn't have a job or anywhere to be and they're always on vacation. I do think when you're being wooed and on vacation, just running around and there's entourages all the time, it takes you a really long time to figure out you hate the person you're with. I guess I also think that she realized pretty quickly, but kind of assumed Jack would come and beg for her back and he didn't. And so she had nowhere else to be. But I think that if two weeks in Jack had come banging down the door and been like, you're with me, toots, she would have been like, I guess I am. (laughs) That's the sound of a tugboat going back to Jack Nicholson. And then he physically assaults her. Who? Ryan O'Neill. And so then she said, things were getting ugly. I was holding on longer than I should have, and I decided to return to Jack. He does it twice, right? Yeah. So she goes back to Jack. And then they let her be in a movie. So Elia Kazan very much wanted Jack for this role. Maybe it was why they agreed. Elia Kazan has a daughter right now who's famous. Zoe Kazan? Mm Mm-hmm. The Nepo Mounts. Maybe that was why they agreed to let me read for female lead. Okay, here's a thought that I have. I made a video about how it's very interesting the way Hollywood has like detached from all current events and someone made a comment being like it's because it's all Nepo babies. 
And so they don't have any artistic vision. They just are born into that field. And I don't want to say that no one has artistic vision, but I do think looking at Angelica Houston and the way that she doesn't have this story or this drive, she just was there. Yeah, she's not compelled particularly by I wonder if that actually is something to say about where the entertainment industry currently sits. I think it's a combo of that and the fact that it's been made into such a business. It's like no longer the business of movie making. It is now like making the product of movies. Obviously, a huge problem is that it's run by conglomerates and corporations who genuinely think AI can do a better job than humans at telling human stories, which is bananas. But then you have the fact that it's being populated by individuals who don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have a vision. Yeah. And I'm not saying none of them do, but... No, but I know what you mean. So she's potentially going to be the female lead in this movie that she's been nepoed into. And they go for a meeting and the guy in charge asks a random woman, do you think Angelica Houston is beautiful? And the woman stares at her and goes, no, interesting, but not beautiful. So then she doesn't get the part of the leading lady, but they do give her just another part in the movie. And this keeps happening to her. She'll have terrible auditions. But then because she's like friends with the people making the movie or they're friends with her dad or somebody owes Jack something or whatever, she still gets a role in the movie. She's always getting consolation roles until she's ready for leading roles instead of getting no roles until she's ready for side roles. Like she starts auditioning for leading ladies. And then she's getting into the role of this character and she realizes that like the other characters were thinking things too. Until that moment, I'd been living in my own head. I'd not even considered the other character's state of mind. Because she's never thought about acting. She just wanted to be an actor because she had seen actors and was friends with actors. So she wants to find a house. She's back with Jack, but she also is still kind of seeing Ryan because they have unfinished business. Whenever things went from horizontal to vertical with Ryan, we had bad fights. I'd begun to suspect that for all his flattery and bravado, he didn't really care for me. She has never experienced love or care. Anyway, March 9th, Roman Polanski (laughs) called and asked if I'd like to go to the movies. I was flattered. So she goes out with him. And then, you know, he assaults a minor in Jack's house. And she was like, that was such an ordeal for me. And somebody writes her a letter being like, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Roman Polanski writes her the letter. No. Elia Kazan. Oh. Well, later, Roman Polanski writes her a letter, I think. And they're like, that's so much to go through. And she was like, ugh. She doesn't really say where she came down on the matter. But she seemed very annoyed that she was going to have to give testimony because she did, in fact, see Roman Polanski with the 13-year-old at Jack Nicholson's house the day of the assault. And she's like, but I didn't see them doing anything bad. They were just coming back from the bedroom. And it's like, well, you saw a grown man alone with a 13-year-old in Jack Nicholson's house. What were they doing? In the? And she's like, he was just taking her photo. Ew, 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 ew. And I'm just like, later she says, Michael Jackson told me he didn't rape those kids and I believe him. She goes, I know other people think other things, but I believe him. Women aren't even really people back then. So (laughs) the question is, can you hurt somebody who's not even a person? That's the question of Hollywood in the 70s. So then she's officially done with Ryan through all of this. When I ended my affair with Ryan, I returned to Jack, but began to look for a house near his so that we could be close, but I could also be independent. Now there was a wry note, an irony, an irritation. Both of us had crossed a line. I mean, he had been cheating on her since before their first date, which I don't know if you consider that cheating, but there was like enormous distrust seated in from like negative day one. And she left and had an affair, but she did fully leave him to have an affair, which is not what he would do. Yeah, but she's like 25 and he's very famous in 40. So it's totally different. Yeah, it's very different. So then they go to Aspen. Her dad gets sick. He's diagnosed with emphysema. At one point, he'd gotten sick and his doctor was like, you have to give up cigarettes, but you can still smoke cigars. So then her dad starts chain smoking cigars. 
which is <laughs> worse. Way worse. I will say there's two times in this book where she actually goes into like a narrative arc and tells you what was happening. And it's when her dad is getting sick and then later when her husband gets sick. Yeah. Those are the only times where there's like a story that you can follow that spans multiple pages and isn't just lists a group of hot people at a hot restaurant wearing hot clothes in a hot city. If I could have sacrificed a part of my own body to help my father, I would have without question. She is very close with her dad. She always has been. She's talking to a therapist and she talks about being anxious about going in and talking to her dad every day in the hospital because he is just an intense personality. And so her therapist has some very interesting advice, which I underlined because I think this is good advice for a lot of people who have complicated relationships with their family where you're like anticipating them saying something that upsets you. Why don't you just go in and not say anything until he does see what happens? I think that that is interesting advice in conversations that you're afraid of. Like, you don't have to start the conversation and wait for them to insult you. I sat by his hospital bed and he told me stories. I hadn't come in with my whole defense on my lips and surprisingly, it felt great. After this, I thought, well, maybe I'll ask him about the time he confronted me about dancing suggestively. And guess what? It goes bad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you would do that. It is funny to like see your dad dying in a hospital and be like, remember that time in second grade you said I couldn't do the bump and grind? (laughs) The bumps. Yeah, but I was contextualizing it for the kids at home who don't know about the bumps. Totally. So then her dad is like, you should quit smoking. And so she and her brother go up to the roof and smoke an entire pack of cigarettes. Fuck you, dad. (laughs) So Marcella had been there through it all. That's the babysitter that he he married. He wasn't having an affair with. He was just having sex in a way that the brother could walk in on and then married immediately. And then her dad gets out of the hospital and makes seven more movies. Can't keep him down. And then Jack breaks his back before doing Chinatown. Because he kept forgetting his keys at this cottage he was staying in in London. So he would have to scale this giant wall to break into his own lodging. And then one day he fell off the wall straight onto his heels and it like broke his feet and up his back. But again, and like, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with anything? It had nothing to do with her. And then she's like, and then those British people who were taking care of him introduced me to Sabrina Guinness, who brought a Taekwondo expert in. And we all watched him do Taekwondo and the men were insecure, but we thought it was wonderful. Anyway, I'm like, Angelica, have you ever asked yourself why am I sharing this story outside of the fact that it has a lot of names that might impress people? This part kind of made me laugh because she was talking about, you know, making dinner and hosting parties at their house when Jack was filming The Shining after his back healed. He was always gray in the face when he got back from work with a blood clot of dried red sugar from special effects stuck to his temple. I thought that she was saying that he was gray in the face because he came back from such an intense day of acting. He was special affected gray. Who cares? He was gray in the face because they painted his face gray. One weekend, Mick Jagger brought his wife Bianca and his daughter Jade to see us. They were living a few doors down. I had known Bianca since Halston days, but I hadn't seen Jade since she was a toddler. And I told me to go away because she wanted to be with Jack. When I asked her what she wanted to drink, she said fresh strawberry juice. I thought that was pretty good for a seven-year-old in November in England. Who cares? Listen, rich people being rich. It's so fun for about four pages. (laughs) And then I say, I get it. They're born that way. Jack's making The Shining. She's just fucking around all day. And then it's her 28th birthday. Jack threw her a party. That's nice. He wrote her the poem. She wore Norma Kamali. Someone had flown in from London to New Mexico. Who cares? When I turned to my brother, Tony, who happened to be there on a layover for London to New Mexico, why on earth, and this is a message to everybody out there, would anybody ever need to know about your brother's layover in 1978? (laughs) (laughs) 
And then she has this little sister that's always just kind of there. She's like, and then Allegra would fly in. And I'm like, Allegra, I think is still at this point 12. No one's taking care of her. She's like a great, great Nepo baby. So she's 42 and haggard. If anything, she's retired. Helena had taken over in her absence, taking care of Allegra. And Helena gave Allegra a purpose for the first time. And I'm like, oh, poor Allegra. Oh, this is my favorite part of the whole book. She's talking about another party that she went to. (laughs) I went to a glamorous party that Sue Mengers threw for Princess Margaret, who, according to Susie in her daily news column, she then proceeds to quote for three pages, just a gossip column report of who was at this party. Can you fucking imagine? Like if your life can be told just as interestingly by a gossip columnist, maybe don't write it down or look deeper. That's when I really lost it. It literally is just a list of who went to this party and it ends with the big sensation of the evening, Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. My dear, everyone gasped. So unexpected. So whoever told you this one was over can go fly a kite. Congrats. At a party of princesses, you were the belle of the ball. And everyone else has a kite. (laughs) But do you guys see what I mean? And like just it's very different than the Julia Fox clip you just posted the other day, Ashley, where she's just like, celebrities are so boring. Well, I will say I do believe they used to be a lot more fun. I think it's not inherently fun. Like you're not I'm not inherently impressed by fame. Tell me. Tell me more. Yeah. Also, okay. And this is something I keep coming back to. And, you know, when you think Jack Nicholson, you think Mike, the situation. (laughs) Totally. Something about interviewing the situation. It was interesting. You cannot describe charisma in a way that it affects you the way real charisma affects you. Mm-hmm. And that isn't the inherent problem of the celebrity memoir. That is why ghostwriters are so necessary is that what it takes to be like a charming person with a gravitational pull in real life. It's hard to pull that off in writing. It's hard to be like compelling in writing. The thing about Jack Nicholson that's interesting, she is not getting it across here. It's not that he had nicknames for people. That's not what made people like incredibly drawn to him. And if you can't get it across, you have to like move on, but you can't just keep listing these people's first and last names and expecting it to have the same effect on me that standing in a room with them would. I also believe that there is something gravitationally about Angelica Houston. Yeah, I'm sure, but I've given up on her even writing that at all. I've given up on her writing it at all, but I'm saying that it makes this book so god-awful because there is not a lick of personality because I think that she has gone through life First of all, having people interested in her because of who her family is, then interested in her because of who she's dating. But like also, I think that then they meet her and they're like, oh, and I love being around her. But in this book, she doesn't even get to, there's no self. I literally don't know what she's like. Me either. Jack was starting to work on The Postman Always Rings Twice, Who Cares, and was being short-tempered with me, a pretty reliable sign that he was otherwise distracted. Jessica Lange was starring and she was at her most luscious. So she knows she's being cheated on again and she's just kind of chilling through it. I could feel Jack's irritation when I accidentally moved the opposite way to what we'd rehearsed. She gets a bit roll in his movie. And I could feel my own hair trigger temper about to snap in self-defense. So this is the first time I think she describes her own personality in the whole book. Her hair trigger temper. I say, what hair trigger temper? We're on page 116. I've never seen any temper. So then she's driving and somebody hits her head on and she breaks her nose. And then she goes to the list of every famous doctor she knows and who those doctors know. But after this car crash where she sees her life flash before her eyes because this car, like the headlights hit her head on and it traumatized her. And also she had to get a bunch of surgery on her face. She realized I needed to do my own thing to have something that was mine alone. So I decided to go work on that. Ma'am. Part two, fame. So somebody is like, hey, if you want to be an actress, have you ever thought about taking a class? And she's like, I guess I'm not doing anything else. She is now almost 30. (laughs) 
Yeah. She's now almost 30, having lived in Hollywood with every opportunity at her door her whole life. She tells her dad that she wants to take acting seriously. He calls up that woman, Sue Mengers, who's like the power broker of Hollywood. And she's like, of course, I'm not going to take on your daughter. And she goes, yeah, she wouldn't take me on as a client, but she did become my mentor. And it's like, yeah, so then you had the most powerful woman in Hollywood be your mentor. That's still good. She went to a class and went, this is stupid. I was 30, the oldest person in her novice class. I had not realized until that moment, but I was pleading for things that I could have simply asked for. And this is in response to her stage presence, but I feel like it also is in response to her life. Like, I think she sat by the window wistfully, like, pleading to God for a role. And then she was like, wait, why don't I call my dad? So anyway, she's at a party one day and this guy, Toby Raffleson, gave a party for Tony Richardson. I don't know other of those people. (laughs) And Tony says, poor little you. This is one of the few like actual conversational interactions too in the book. And it's interesting because it is very telling, but there's so few of them. Poor little you, Tony continued. So much talent and so little to show for it. You're never going to do anything with your life. (laughs) She goes, he had a sing-song voice like one of those parrots and he spoke with a slight lisp, but there was no mistaking the edge. Um, no, that is like no mistaking the edge. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way to mistake the edge in that one, my friend. It was a mean thing to say. When someone says you're never going to do anything with your life, They could say it in French, the language of love. (laughs) And you still know it's hateful. Uh, So then she's asked by this director, Lyndon Chubuck, to play the lead in a short film of an adaption of a William Faulkner story, A Rose for Emily. And this helps her kind of get her legs as an actor. And again, I want to point out that she was asked to be in this movie. Then she auditions for This Is Spinal Tap. And as you know, she was in a very iconic scene in Spinal Tap, but she does not get the role that she auditioned for. She is bad at auditioning. She's good at showing up and saying, shouldn't I be in your movie? But she's bad when they say, what would you be like in my movie? For a long time, I found it difficult to sing in public. My voice reminded me of my mother's when she used to sing to me when I was a child back in Ireland. I mean, that's interesting. Go into that, baby. The Spinal Tap thing reminded me of just how many consolation prize roles she got when she was starting to build her resume. Like, if she showed up, they weren't going to give her the lead role, but they were going to throw her in there. So then she gets handed a script called Prizzy's Honor, which is like a satire about an Italian mob family. I feel like we should watch it. Oh, yeah. Should we watch it for the Patreon? We'll watch it for the Patreon. But anyway, they were like, would you like to play May Rose Prizzy, who's, I think, one of the leads? And they're like, totally. And then they go, cool. What if Jack Nicholson, your boyfriend, was the other star? And John Houston, your dad, was a director. And she's like, I'll ask them. (laughs) And sure enough, they do it. And they meet up. She's worried about the meeting, but they get along. She asks her agent to get her more money. And they were like, absolutely the fuck Literally, the agent goes, I asked. They said no. And she goes, call them on speaker. I I don't believe you. The chutzpah on this little lady. On speaker, she then hears them say, you want more money for Angelica Houston? You must be kidding. Go ahead. Ask me. We'd like nothing better than see her drop from the film. She has no talent. Her boyfriend is the star and her father is the director. That's the only reason we're even having this conversation. Yeesh capiche. It made her indignant, though, and she decided that when the movie came out, he would eat his words. I will say... He might have. She got nominated for a fucking Oscar. And then won that bitch. Sometimes I wish my dad had a lifetime's worth of movie making so that I could get my first ever leading role when he gave it to me. Well... First, I'd bomb, and then he'd give me a second chance because my daddy loves me. (laughs) And then in that second chance, I would prove you and the acting coach and that actually I am the best actress. Totally. Then there's this random line untied to anything else, even in its same paragraph. From what I later came to understand through an article in The New Yorker, my former lover, Bob Richardson, was now homeless and living on the beach in Santa Monica. Excuse? Times were tough. 
don't worry. If you're saying, when are they going to Aspen? It's always. Always. There's <laughs> always just a story about who's in Aspen now. That's somebody hot, somebody famous. So she gets nominated for Best Supporting Actress in Prizzy's Honor. There's no compelling narrative arc. Best Supporting Actress category came up early in the program. My name was called out by Masha Mason and Richard Dreyfus. From far, far away, the announcement trickled down the stage and into my consciousness. Everything went into slow motion. After I waddled up there through the limelight, I accepted the Oscar in memory of Bruce Wander. I mean, who cares? I was electrified. I couldn't believe it. The atmosphere was charged from my coup, but we were a little rueful that Dad and Jack had not won as well. If that had happened, it would have echoed the dual win Dad shared with his own father for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre when he had won Best Director and Walter for Best Supporting Actor. What? What if, like, everyone in your family had won an Oscar at some point? Ugh, we wouldn't be stuck in Ridgewood. I like Ridgewood. I like Ridgewood too, but it's no longer off a train that's convenient for me. <laughs> I hope that if I ever win an Oscar, I can put it right here on this shelf in Ridgewood. I hope that if I ever win an Oscar, I take the winnings <laughs> and build myself a new train line. <laughs> Dude. We can't get into it. I would love uh, to get into it. <laughs> to get into it. MTA, are you listening? Eric Adams, I swear to God, you bitch. <laughs> I'd hope they might let us share that one, Dad said, but I'm so proud of you. Well, okay. Then she kind of loses her confidence. I don't really know what from. <laughs> I think she's just still bad at auditioning and mostly partying. And I think everyone thinks that that best actress thing was kind of a fluke. And she's like, no, it totally was. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, then she has a dream that her and Michael Jackson are lovers. And the next day they're like, do you want to work with Michael Jackson? And she's like, ugh crazy. It was being filmed by Francis Coppola. Ever heard of him? Francis Coppola calls her up and goes, I'm doing this thing for Disneyland starring Michael Jackson. Do you want to be the supreme leader? And I saw a photo and she's fully dressed in alien garb. She really just gets asked to do things and she's like, totally. And then later, because she wins this Oscar, they just give her a development deal at MGM. And she's like, I was just sitting with this assistant that they were paying for in an office that they bought for me without a single idea in my head. <laughs> And she goes, I was feeling really bad about myself because every time I came up with something, they were like, that's not good at all. And then Marlon Brando called me and he said, you're a star. Never forget it. And she's like, I really needed it. He actually <laughs> said, you're a queen. <laughs> she goes, whenever I'm feeling down about myself, I remember that he called me out of the blue to tell me that. And I'm like, that's good. <laughs> uh, I hope next time my dad gives me a role that wins me an Oscar. Marlon Brando has something to say about it. And then someone else is just paying for me to have an assistant in a studio to just see if I think things. Marlon Brando says, don't give up. Tuts. You deserve to be here. <laughs> you more than anyone. I hadn't really been aware of Jack's reputation at first. It kind of grew <laughs> over time. I think the idea of Jack, he's so bad. What? She says, I wasn't recognizing Jack as a world-class philanderer at the time. I mean, what do you mean? He just was always cheating on you. For as prolific as it seems to have been, and as I have heard reported, he was actually quite discreet. Was he? Okay, so she would find like jewelry or apparel or random things, and then she would wear it to see if anyone would come up and claim it. But it never happened. It could have been left there by Helena or Annie or any number of women who came through his life. So there was no way of pinning him on something like that or ever truly wanting to. I left him more than a few times, and I have such vivid memories of getting into my car and driving to Kenny Solm's house with all my bags packed, intending to never go back to Mulholland Drive. Kenny would take pictures of me on his Polaroid camera, sitting in the trunk of my little Mercedes, crying over my suitcases like spilled milk. But Jack and I had a very good rapport. He could really turn up the corners of a day. I loved him, and I wanted to be with him and have his children. 
Okay, I'm sorry. But you think your big sneak move is to say, I found this piece of jewelry or item of apparel, so I'm going to sneakily wear it around and see if anyone comes up to me and says, how'd you find that shirt that I left when I was fucking your boyfriend? (laughs) How many people do you think saw her wearing their earrings and were like, she's crazy? (laughs) When it became evident to me that Jack was not a faithful man, I didn't know what I could do about it. There's only so much you can do. Then at a certain point, other people start to look good to you. She goes up to her dad and is like, I don't know what to do. He's cheating on me all the time. And her dad says, <laughs> stop crying. <laughs> this is nonsense. Meaningless, honey. Men do this. It means nothing. Why do you care? It's made me feel really sad for her because I was like, well, don't cry for Angelica. She doesn't cry for herself. <laughs> oh, sweet jelly. You deserved better. Actually, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. She just like has fun. She keeps fucking her whole life. She's in Aspen, okay? And before the Texas oil money ruined it. She also says the reason she and Jack never got married is because they would both feel the urge, but never at the same time. I actually do not believe that that's what marriage is. Well, yes, because she felt the urge always and he felt the urge never. (laughs) And in that way, the timing never landed. (laughs) Kind of in the way that like me and you have never been in Ecuador at the same time because me and you have never been to Ecuador. (laughs) The timing just isn't right. Her dad is getting sicker. There's a lot of conversation about it, but that's the gist. And then she gets a script called The Dead. Anyway, you'll never guess who wrote the script. Her brother. (laughs) (laughs) And then the dad directed it and she starred in it. Then it was Jack's 50th birthday. She had a bunch of his best friends come and surprise him. They had this pool in the house they were staying in. So she woke him up and made his coffee and then walked him down to the pool and all of his friends were swimming laps and singing happy birthday to him. And he was like, boo, grumpy. I'm grumpy, Jack. He remained in a bad mood all day. That is something that would really make me laugh. If I was staying in a house with a pool and you just had people swimming laps (laughs) until I woke up, how many laps did they swim? It's just so much funnier than a regular surprise party. Because everyone is just treading water and being like, he's coming. Start swimming. Start to- oh, no, no, no. That was the cat. Okay, hold on. Hold on. He's swim, swim, swim. In the morning. You haven't even had your own coffee yet because you can't get into the pool for 30 minutes after eating. You have to get your swims out before Stop breakfast. Your lap. Start swimming. Start swimming. Start swimming. Then she buys herself a house and she doesn't tell anybody because she's proud of the fact that she's finally made enough money. It was $100,000. I will say, I can't believe she did not make a dime. She says it's the first thing she ever bought herself with the first money she ever made for herself. Well, yeah, because she did not work until she was 29. I can't believe she like never worked in her life. And then at 30, won an Oscar and bought a house in L.A. (laughs) And then she didn't even tell anybody because it was kind of a joke that she did it. She just like did it for her to feel good like getting a secret little tattoo or something, but it's property in LA that's only gone up exponentially. She didn't tell Jack for a year. And to that I say, did he ask? (laughs) Did he ever once say, where are you going at night? (laughs) Did he once say, do you have a house? (laughs) I don't think he asked her a question once. So her dad is getting sicker still, touch and go at Cedars Sinai. But he decides to film a movie in Rhode Island. Yeah, so they go to Rhode Island. He's going to star in the movie, actually. Yeah. And they're like, you need an oxygen tank. And he's like, I'll just say my line so fast and then put it back in. (laughs) (laughs) 
And they're like, we really can't, we can't condemn this idea enough, but go for it. I mean, good on him. Good on him. I actually really have a lot of respect, but it is so funny for your doctors to be like, I don't think you can leave the hospital and for you to be like, but what if I made a movie in Rhode Island? Yeah. <laughs> like it's so the opposite. I hope we do that with Bitchness this season two. I hope we die on camera and then they have to like use little puppets to finish it up or they just do like captions or something. Okay. Actually, I love the puppets idea <laughs> and I would love to get Muppets on the phone. <laughs> Mr. Muppet, I'm sure that you already have two that look just like <laughs> that you threw in the trash. <laughs> So then after like a day in Rhode Island, they were like, actually, dad needs to go to the hospital. So he goes to a hospital in Massachusetts and they're going to visit him and continuing this movie. They've recast him. And one night she's leaving the hospital and her dad says, can you please just stay? And she goes, no, I have to go home and get some rest. And so then she kisses him goodnight and Marcella calls and says he has passed away. When dad died, everything went silence. There was an empty chasm where he had been, the sound of his voice stilled, like a whale that breaches and dives into the deep. All that character emptied of expression. I longed for him, his burst of laughter, his head thrown back, his monkey grin, and I cursed his disease and time for taking him. His last words were, let's give him hell, which is awesome. Great. Okay, so he's married to Marciella, right? Wait, can I say what his real, real last words were, which are not as awesome? So then she's planning the funeral and they're going to keep it like a teeny tiny funeral. And then they're like, well, his lawyers were basically his best friends. They were so involved in his life. And so she's like, no, I don't want some of the only people at his whole ass funeral to be his lawyers. And then all at once, I heard dad's voice everywhere in every corner of the room. It was a direct contradiction to what I was feeling, a ghostly experience that I've ever had. Don't be ridiculous, honey. He said, of course, they should be there. I'm sorry. Let's give him hell is so much better than a ghost being like, let my lawyers come. <laughs> So he had married that woman who had like stuck by his side through the end. And she's never outwardly nice, but she does give her a lot of credit for sticking it out and being there no matter what. And she always leaves the room when an ex-wife comes in. Oh, she also would help him have enough oxygen to go have affairs. Yeah. She would like set him up with some oxygen tanks and be like, okay, honey, be back before your oxygen runs out. Yeah. He'd be like, I need eight hours of oxygen and a limousine. Ava Gardner's landing at LAX soon. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd be like, I'm dropping her back off at LAX. Anyway, so a small monetary inheritance was eventually distributed among Zoe and the four siblings. Two houses in the greater part of dad's estate went to Marcella, who came up to my farm a few months after the funeral, bringing me a set of exquisite Mexican serving dishes and a painting by dad entitled Spirit of St. Clarence, a portrait of a pale-faced Gothic knight vanquishing a red dragon. It was the last time I ever saw Marcella. Wow. Can you believe? Yes, I can. I love that she's still calling them exquisite serving dishes. I don't know, if some bitch fucked my dad and took my house, I would be like, you can take back your goddamn plates. (laughs) He had a house in Puerto Vallarta, though, and like his dream was for it either to fall back into the jungle or like go back to the locals. And I think they drove by it on a boat later and it had become like a tourist trap from hell. Damn. Eventually, Woody Allen calls her and is like... Oh, first she does The Witches. Yeah, she does The Witches, the Roald Dahl movie. Did you read that book? I read half of it. I think it actually gave me nightmares as a little kid. It was very scary. I don't like to be scared. I like to be empowered. (laughs) She always has these roles where she's like, I was horrifically uncomfortable and had migraines for years. (laughs) But that was the makeup. (laughs) It's because she's always getting cast as these like strong featured women. And they're like, what we love is that you already look like a witch. (laughs) We thought we could dial it up to a 10 by like... Painting your face in cement. And like popping your eyeballs out. (laughs) 
<laughs> that happens later. Then she does a Woody Allen thing. She finds him to be a weird director. But she likes it because he lets her just do whatever she wants. And then she does a Wes Anderson film. Wait, I want to talk about her getting into character. At this point, she kind of breaks aside and explains to you her process, which I actually think is so important for any aspiring actors out there. Before I start any movie, I amass whatever information I can about my character, piece it together, and usually arrive at some conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. You don't understand craft. You don't understand dedication. No, I loved it because that's what I do with these memoirs is I sit down and I read the book and then I think about the book and think a thing. I piece it together and come to a conclusion. Every time. It's exactly how Matt Damon answered that chalkboard problem. Can I say something? I actually think it says a lot about current day discourse and how a lot of the times it actually comes to no conclusion. A lot of times people posit an idea and then they don't do the research and they don't actually think through their idea. And I think that coming to a conclusion is a lost art. She goes, Jack and I had been seeing less of each other. I had been going out with him to public events for years, and we still clung to that old habit. But we were undoubtedly drifting apart. I did not often spend the night at his house. He was directing stuff. She later finds out that there's another woman living there. Yeah, she's like, sometimes I would go to his house, and there would just be an array of creams and perfumes by the sink. And I didn't ask who they belonged to. And then she gets asked to be in a Frere's movie, Stephen Frere's. And she doesn't like the role. And she calls up Sue Mengers, who goes, you shut the fuck up, you dumb goddamn bitch. You take, <laughs> if Stephen Freer tells you to shit in a corner, you say thank you. And you know what it was? It was for the movie The Grifters. And she now says it's the best role she ever did in her life. John Cusack played her son. And she said that they had just like a freaky sexual tension. And then she sits down to lunch with Jack. And she's like, it was so random that he wanted to talk to me. And I'm like, totally. When you're in a 17-year relationship with someone, it's so weird when they, like, hope to have a conversation. And he goes, listen, there's going to be a baby. Someone's having a baby. And she's like, is it you? And he's like, yes. And it's with this woman, Rebecca Broussard, who had been, like, fully his girlfriend for years. And everyone there had been covering for it. Yeah. And he's like, how'd you know? And she's like, I could tell. And he was the father. And then they had another baby two years later. And then what really hurt her, she said, was that they would do all these press releases where they'd be like, finally, Jack finds love. And she'd be like, you fucking. But I am kind of like. That is mean. I don't believe that he found love with her. But did he have love? Like, would you call what you guys had love? Where? Also, he asks her to stay together. He says, yes, she's going to have the baby, but I don't want nothing to change. I asked if he was going to stand by Rebecca, and he said, yes, I'm the father of this child. And she said, there's only room for one woman in this picture, and I'm going to retire from it. I mean, what an odd conversation, first of all. It's very Will and Jada to me. It's very Will and Jada, but in the, like, what was their relationship to her? She says she was just absolutely besotted for ages. What does it mean? What did she lose other than public appearances? I do think so. She gets into this very, very briefly, but she says the fact that Rebecca Broussard had become pregnant where I had failed had made me feel inadequate and bitter. The path to discovering what was wrong with me and why my reproductive organs were not functioning was a long and arduous one. The fertility doctors had discovered that I had endometriosis and had probably had it since my teens. I had undergone a laparoscopy followed by a hysteroscopy. Sorry, I'm saying this wrong, but a child was not to be. She had never up to this point talked about trying to have a baby, struggling. She did at one point. She says something like, I tried to have a baby, but it didn't happen. But it's like a sentence. I mean, if you for seven years were together and wanting a child, it feels like that would be more than a sentence. It would take up more time in your life than Hunter S. Thompson running for sheriff of Aspen. She says that, I think, 
she had decided she was far enough in her career that she was ready to have a baby, but never talks about actively trying. And I feel like she says like I wasn't having a baby. Like there, was, I've noticed she said one little thing about it. Yeah, but there's as we said, like if you are a woman trying to have a baby and failing, I feel like there's more going on emotionally. Yeah, than nothing. She also goes to Jack's office and just beats the shit out of him for a little release. He calls her up and goes, "Tuts, you really got me." She then goes to Cannes and goes out with Prince Albert. Yeah, but she doesn't like him that much. So now we're in section three, fortune. And I think the fortune is love, or it might be a literal fortune. I can't tell. They sold the house that they built together for $11 million, so that could be the fortune. Oh. But also, I think, like, love makes you rich. She was, like, also already rich. So anyway, so she meets a sculptor named Robert Graham, Bob. Bob was Mexican. He was a famous sculptor known for his massive bronze works. They had been set up, and she liked him right away. Bob grew up under the impression that his father had died. That's what his mother had always claimed. But on his 12th birthday, a strange man came to his house and took him to lunch. And then they just kind of never talked again. This story was inserted randomly, but I do find it very interesting that she has been in three major relationships with two men who were, like, misinformed about who their parents are. Okay, here's what I have to say. So she goes on and for pages and pages describes what he's like and what his personality was like and his interests and his disinterest and how his upbringing made him who he was. And I get that her childhood was in her first book, but still, I don't know what she likes or dislikes. And I do think she could read Grimoire Girls last week's episode about writing your own eulogy for yourself. And what is a memoir, if not a self-written eulogy? Totally. The way with which you'd like your life to be remembered. I found this line off-putting. He had the best parts of Dad and Jack, but not the temper or the women. Like, what were the good parts of Dad and Jack? Because you actually didn't really explain them. Also, I kind of feel like if, like Mac was like, what I love about you is that you remind me of the things I like about my ex. Except for you don't cheat on me. You're just like my ex, except for you don't cheat on me, and that's why I like you. Bob cooked me perfect breakfast and took me salsa dancing. He owned two Rottweilers. And then she gets a call about doing the Adams Family, which is cool. A lot of makeup went into it. Yeah, and at one point, her co-star's eyeball fell out. Yeah, like he was just at a bar and it fell out and he popped it back in and went to Cedar sinai and they were like, yeah, that was correct. So go home and glue your eyes in now because they're loosey-goosey. Turns out they can flip and flop out Someone of your like freaking head. Rolling my eyes, that's going to be unscrewing them a bit, no? <laughs> I roll them hard. She takes Bob to Ireland and shows him all the things that are important to her. She sees her old house where she grew up, St. Clarence, but she can't really go in. They get engaged there. They get engaged and immediately it's all over the news, on the radio, it's everywhere. She wanted to marry Jack so bad and you just can't marry someone who doesn't want to marry you. As soon as she met someone that liked her back, they were engaged in like a year. She decides to wear a white crepe Armani suit and a picture hat for my wedding. I wanted to look the way women look on their second marriage. It felt like more the truth and more dignified than skipping down the aisle at 40 trying to look like a girl. Oh, she also finds out about the Rodney King riots and goes driving through the main area of L.A. And she's like, oh, there is obviously a disconnect from the riches and the pores. So they decide to move to Venice Beach. Because she wants to be more connected to the poor, I think. They'd make a giant mansion based on like a monastery they saw. Then she's like, ugh, but I could still hear him yelling out there. <laughs> she's like, so it wasn't, it wasn't great. She's like, I got what I wanted. A lot of famous people were at their wedding. I'm sure you could have guessed. They went to Mexico for their honeymoon. He wanted to take her to Oaxaca. Can I say I actually found this line very lovely. Mm -hmm. She says, when I look back at photos of our wedding, everyone looks young and beautiful. Well, you still love me when I'm no younger. I'll remember that you are young and beautiful when I look at photos from your wedding. Thanks. Then there's just this period where all the old greats start dying. There's this guy, Irving Lazar, who threw all these parties. 
And I do think she like lives through the end of kind of like the roaring 50s, 60s, 70s Hollywood and all the old guard starts to die and things are definitely starting to change. And she sees it in Aspen mostly the way that a four season pops up and people are seen and being seen. And she talks about the red carpet culture of the 80s and how that completely changed Hollywood and made it very who's who and made it harder to escape the paparazzi. Yeah, but it's hard to tell like what she finds to be the important change because this whole book feels like a who's who. Yeah. Then she does a movie with Jack, which is interesting. She felt that the reunion was very formal and she says it was nice, but she, again, doesn't ever really dig into anything ever. Then she does a Western. She quotes Jack. I guess Jack Nicholson said everyone should do a Western once a summer. Oh, yeah. Every summer do a Western. I always say that. Then she gets diagnosed with cancer on her nozzle and she has to get it like scooped off. And she's like, oh, there's just a hole in my nose that they would fill with wax until I could get a reconstruction. She's like, it really made me insecure when there was hot lights on it because the wax would melt. Or if I was doing a kissing scene, I was like, damn, that does suck. But they did figure it out. But don't you think getting diagnosed with cancer would like be more of a chapter? I don't know. Nothing's important to her. That's except so for true. Aspen. <laughs> and then the parties that that hairdresser Ara threw. Then she gets a call saying, have you ever thought about being a movie director? And she goes, I actually had always wanted to, but I didn't even know where to start. So I never even asked. And they go, well, do you want to direct this thing on Monday? And she goes, okay. So she gets to set and she's sitting in her trailer. She's like, why is no one coming to get me? So she goes down to set and they're like, oh, yeah, only actors get called to set. Like a director is in charge of this thing. We're supposed to just be here on time. And you're supposed to be here like first. And she's like, oops, so embarrassing. Now everyone knows that I'm a noob. Anyway, it's called Bastards Out of Carolina. Is about a 10-year-old girl who gets assaulted, I think. And she does it for the Turner Classics. And they get the first cut of it. And they're like, you can't have a masturbation scene and a rape of a 10-year-old scene in this movie. And she goes, well, what did Ted Turner think? And they come back and they go, Ted Turner and Jane Fonda watched it and screamed. And she goes, so they loved it. And they go, no, they screamed and said they won't air any of it. So now she's heartbroken. She's literally crying one day. But she throws a party and leaves her own party to go upstairs and cry about the fact that this movie she worked so hard on will never see the light of day. And who should call the next day but can. The Cannes goddamn film festival being like, we heard you did an amazing movie. We want to air it. She gets critically acclaimed there. It's bought out by Showtime and she ends up winning an Oscar for director. No, she didn't win an Oscar, but she got nominated for a Director's Guild Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Dramatic Specials. And she gets nominated for another award. Oh, nominated for an Emmy. Yeah. Because it aired on Showtime. Got it. And then there was like international distribution companies that wanted it. And then Turner was like, no. She goes, making movies is a bittersweet business, I guess. I feel like you have a pretty sweet time of it. Yeah, it's been pretty sweet for you. And then she and Bob decide to try to have a baby and they do IVF and it does not take. And then she says, "Okay, it was not meant to be and I will not try again. She has a very close relationship with all of her nieces and nephews. I don't think we ever mention them because she only ever talks about them in inconsequential stories, but she has a brother, Tony, who has the same parents as her. And then she has a half-brother, Danny, and a half-brother, Allegra. And she is very close with them at different points in her life. I think as an adult, her and Tony are not very close, but she spends a lot of time in the later half of the book with Danny, most of all. Yeah, they bond when her dad gets sick. And then, of course, it turns out that Allegra, so they have the same mom, her and Allegra, and Allegra's being raised by the father. She finds out that their father, John Houston, is actually not her biological father. Her biological father is like some important person in England with his own lineage of sorts. Anyway, so she moves to Ireland to do Ever After with Drew Barrymore, who once again sounds incredible. She says she's a delight to work with, but one scene she didn't think Drew Barrymore was taking her seriously. And the next day, 
Drew sent her flowers. Daisies and the card read, thank you for making a better actress. Love, Drew. I love Drew. Okay, so this story, this is what I mean when I say there are random stories that could be interesting and crazy. And I think that if she had this story and like two others throughout a 180-page book, this could have been a fine book. So she is riding horses. They're in, I think, Europe somewhere. Are they in Ireland? Mm-hmm. So they're riding horses while they're filming. She's just like off with these Irish boys, one of them that she's having an affair with. And they end up accidentally riding into a swamp. And the horses are absolutely stuck. They are trying to get out. They're exerting themselves. They are drowning in mud puddles. And so this guy is like grabbing these wood planks, trying to get the horses out. He ends up getting all the horses free. They are like out of breath. They could have broken bones. They could have broken their backs. Like it's this crazy situation where like they almost drowned in mud. The horses almost drowned in mud. It was very traumatic. It was very scary. And then they got out and they walked back and it was like very romantic because they had just like survived a near-death experience together in this swamp. So her husband calls and is like, I'm coming out to visit. And she's like, don't come. And he goes, what are you doing up there? And she's like, I just wanted my space. But really what she wanted was to have an affair. And so he goes, well, I'm going to Paris. If you want to come, great at the end of this. And they go and they have a long talk. But she decides then and there that she would be with him through thick and thin and that actually having work crushes isn't worth giving up your husband. Interesting. So then she is doing another directorial effort. The Mammy. And she wants Rosie O'Donnell to be the star, but Rosie O'Donnell won't do it. So she steps in, luckily. Well, she also like barely will ask Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell wants to drop out. And she's like, okay, I don't want to work with someone who doesn't want to work with me. And the producer is like, but could you ask nicely? And she's like, no. (laughs) She's like, I'll be in it. So she's starring and acting in this movie. And she's like, wow, that is actually so hard. They renamed the movie... Nobody really wants to see it. She thinks someone else cut it weird. I don't know. She goes, I no longer have an opinion about the film as I was incapable of being objective. Fair enough. Oh, my God. Then she meets Wes Anderson and she's like, it was so crazy. He was from Texas, but he didn't even dress like an oil man or a cowboy. So that was kind of weird. He seemed a bit of an anomaly. Wait till you'll hear about Austin. It's just so interesting to me how she will just straight up say things about people based on these judgments she's had about growing up in this extremely unique way and then just be like, everyone must think this. So she does it. She has a great time. It's very collaborative. The whole team is incredible. Her and Bill Murray get along amazingly. They get along so well that, in fact, Wes Anderson goes, you must be in my next film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And she says, what's weird is we start doing that movie and Bill is so mean to me. He invited everybody but me out to dinner the first night. I've never felt more excluded in my life. And it was so different than the Royal Tenenbaums where everybody was a family. But she says they end up meeting at a party and kind of making up. So she's moved on. She then goes on to do Darjeeling Limited with all of them. Wes Anderson, too. Then her brother Danny is going to have a baby with Katie. And they're like, oh, this will be all of our baby. The baby's name is Stella. And she, it seems, stays very close with Stella. Well, Katie struggles and commits suicide, and so Angelica kind of takes over with the baby. Yeah. So they're very close. I know, it's just all vacations. I'm literally looking. Dan and I went on vacation to the Costa Alegre in November. We went to Puerto Vallarta. All she does is vacation. When she talks about the Life Aquatic, this was very interesting. She says, I may be overly sensitive to say this, but the job in Italy was overshadowed by feeling strangely like an outsider. This is the first time I think she's ever talked about feelings on set about anything. She talks about painful wigs, weird contacts, crazy prosthetics. She has never talked about how she felt in any of these projects, even the ones she's directing. Anyway, back to what Norway looks like. She went to Norway. (laughs) She saw a concert and there's a lot of famous people there. Rihanna, John Legend, Lionel Richie. Oh my God, how crazy is this line? 
She runs into her old friend, Bert Schneider. He calls her name from across a parking lot. And then she says where he had once been the handsomest of men, tall and slender and elegant. Now he was bent over, twisted and misshapen. (laughs) His face was gray and his eyes were bloodshot. He looked like a cadaver. And then she doesn't really dive into it any further. Sometimes you just got to let people know this guy, not hot. (laughs) Was hot, did not stay hot. Anyway, then her friend Helmet dies. And then she does this reading for Hunter S. Thompson. And she talks about the who's who of who was there. And this one, because there's been so many who's who's of who was there, it's just interesting the eras of Hollywood that were who's who'sing through. Hugh Hefner and three blondes were sitting on a banquette on the second level drinking pink champagne. That sounds disgusting. Of course it sounds disgusting, but I can't believe we've gone from Marlon Brando to Hefner and the Three Girlfriends. What a many eras, you know? It was 2005. Then she quits smoking. Her, Danny, and Katie all go to a seminar and they get hypnotized and pray. So Katie, Danny's wife, goes to rehab. A little while later, she ends up dying. But that's all, you know, random sentences throughout all of these other projects. Bob then gets very sick. And she's like, I thought he was being dramatic. Everyone thought he was being dramatic. It's so crazy that she's like, I don't know. It didn't really seem normal that he kept on talking about pain. He was having pain. like kidney failure. And that he'd been losing the feeling and movement of his extremities for like 20 years. Yeah. He had horrible arthritis. I've heard since that medical records from the previous years had warned him of a weak heart and that he had been advised to quit tobacco and alcohol. But this information was never imparted to me. Many of the people who loved Bob, including me, suspected that he was something of a hypochondriac, always worrying about this symptom or that. But his friend David Navros later commented, Bob was in fact stoic. I mean, he was your husband. Were you aware of whether or not he was stoic or whiny? It's so crazy that your friend had to be like, no, actually, he wasn't just a whiny bitch. He was dying. So she does talk about him dying, and it is very sad. It takes four months. You know, he's in ICU. He's in and out of surgeries. They keep trying to save him. They have nurses at home. He keeps falling. He has, like, a horrible heart attack and a stroke. I mean, it is so sad. I welled up. Same. And this part was, again, very compelling and, well, not well-written necessarily, but there was a story. When Bob got sick, the world turned mean in ways that were totally unexpected. She was very heartbroken when he passed away, of course. She took all the flowers that had been given to him, and he had been a sculptor who had done many public works. So she, like, took all the flowers to all of his works throughout L.A. Yeah. And then, honestly, this book gets so sad, and it's just kind of about all the people she loved who have passed within six months of each other. So many people she loved died. In five months, from October 2008 to February 2009, four people to whom I was deeply connected, Bob, Katie, Sam Bottoms, and Hercules Belleville, all died. I did not hear from my brother Tony. Our shared experiences were what Tony and I had in common, but we related to them quite differently. I didn't hear from Jeremy Relton either. I do not want to speculate on how it happened, but Jeremy decided not to be my friend. The loss of his companionship and the deterioration of our relationship still bewilders me. Life takes strange turns into backwaters and we learn to let go. I thought this chapter was very beautiful. She talks about her relationship with her sister Allegra and how it's ebbed and flowed a bit because she feels that she let her sister down a little bit as an older sister slash caretaker. Now she goes to Ireland. She always tries to see the house she grew up in, St. Clarence. She finally was able to go and take a visit. And then she gets smashed. <laughs> <laughs> and it changes her life. Do you guys remember Smash when um, David Foster's current wife took a turn playing Marilyn Monroe on Broadway? I loved that show. Me too. <laughs> so they do Smash. It only lasts two seasons, but she's like, oh my God, could I do six years of TV? But she didn't have to. Can I say, I think every single person on the planet watched the first three episodes. I know I did. 
I mean, I think 100% of the people in this room did. So if you apply that. <laughs> 2011, she turned 60. She had a lot of fun. She moved to New York. She moved back. Since I came back to LA, two years have passed. I am grateful for the experience of Smash, but glad to be home. <laughs> it is funny to have this whole life and whatever it is we did or didn't say about her book to end it and be like, now that I've lived through Smash, <laughs> in retrospect, Smash really uh, changed things for me. Oh, wait, there was a line that I found very interesting. When I began working on Smash, a lot of people asked how it felt to be back. Of course, when you're in your own company, you never really go away. It's just a matter of to what extent the public is aware of your existence. Although I guess that visibility for an actor is devoutly to be wished for, I've always treasured the idea that I could, if I wanted, take a break, disappear from view, go on a walkabout from time to time. I do think that is like an interesting thing that the press does where they're obsessed with like comebacks and be backs and they like don't know how to word a headline if someone isn't mm -hmm. reproving themselves. And we like can't understand the existence that someone has just continued existing. She ends it by saying, I saw a medium recently. She said that dad is happy in the afterlife because he likes alcohol and you can have a drink in heaven. She asked, who is the man with the goatee? I said it was Bob. She said he tells me not to worry that he's coming with me to the new house. And that's where it ends. Lovely. So I have to say something. The title is Watch Me. I didn't watch a single thing about her. Which is a reference to the fact that those two times men pointed out that she wasn't doing anything with her life. She went, oh, yeah, watch me. And then she goes on to succeed. I do feel that this tone of being like, how dare you think that I can't achieve something? I'll overcome the fact that I haven't tried yet is a bit silly. Like, I just don't think that she deserves or is entitled to this kind of like incredulousness that people would doubt her. But maybe she is incredulous that people would doubt her, but she that's not in the book. Yeah, I just don't th feel she's earned the right to be like, I overcame. I proved them all wrong. I called my dad. <laughs> So we are starting a new segment of this podcast called What Should This Book Have Been Called? What should she title her memoir this time? Ashley, do you have any ideas? Yes, I think it should be divided into two books. And I think it should be called A Biography of Jack Nicholson by Angelica Houston and A Biography of Bob Graham. Was that his name? Yeah, Robert Graham. Robert Graham by Angelica Houston. I was going to call it Angelica Houston on Very Important Men. <laughs> Guest list by Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston, all the places Jack Nicholson cheated on me. I don't think you're ready for this jelly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I wasn't ready. Um, final thoughts? You know, I would love to know something about her. How fertile would you say this soil is? Two out of five. Yeah, I would say that this is some absolute silt. Can I say how many warm teenies would you like to drink with her? Five. I have a lot of questions. I would say two today. Yeah. 1730 years ago. I want to party with Angelica Houston. I think she was so in society that even if she had met me as like her gardener, she would have been like, do you want to come to a party tonight? Yeah. I would have been like, yeah. She'd be like, okay, it's on a yacht in Monaco. And I'd be like, okay. And she's like, yeah, you could come. And I just feel like for the next seven weeks, she'd be like, well, what are you doing tomorrow? We're all going to Paris. And I'd be like, okay, I could come. And I just think she would keep inviting you until you eventually had to go to work, which she'd be like, why? Yeah. Call your dad. <laughs> You know, I feel good in that we've crossed one off that I feel people felt we ought to have done. Yeah. And now you can't say that anymore. It's like folding your laundry. Yeah. We've done it now. It's been done. <laughs> we love you guys. And Ashley, who do we love more? The five star wormies. Thank you so much to our gorgeous, stunning five star reviewers. Thank you to Girly Girl 
I am not a Barbie girl. I'm a girly girl living in whatever world you're in, if you'll have me. Thank you, fire old. You aren't old to me. You're fresh like a hot, hot fire. Thank you to M the Egg. You are the sweetest little round angel, and I'm so grateful to have your hard-boiled face over here. <laughs> Thank you, Boojay. You are the most gorgeous bird um, I've ever seen soar by. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.